don't mock me, but every week I actually plan my Sabbath, ceasing, resting, embracing, and feasting under those four categories. And I've, I've done that for many, many years. And we've done it as a family. We've done it when our kids were little. And it has just given me a vision of resting in the presence of God. I, I tell people all the time that the most important thing is not whether or not you believe in the sovereignty of God, it's whether or not you actually practice it. And practicing the sovereignty of God one day a week, where I consciously just hand it all over to Him, has just, it's been a weekly reminder and reset that it's gone up to me. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the next episode of the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. If you're new to the podcast, the whole reason that we do this is to have practical conversations on health and leadership. My name is David Bloom, and for the first time, I'm going solo. Alan Briggs is not joining me, and if I'm honest, I'm a little, I'm a little lonely. And uh, we're going to get through it together because we have an exciting episode. I uh, had a conversation with John Tyson, and before I get to that and before I introduce John... I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast, first and foremost, and but also thank you for subscribing and for sharing and for rating and reviewing. It's been such an encouragement to us because obviously Alan and I think these conversations are crucial to have for leaders, but to see it resonate with you guys to this degree has been it's just been encouraging and we don't just have these conversations because we like the sound of our own voice. In fact, it is all kinds of weird to hear myself through a podcast, but we really do think that these are valuable. And so thank you for joining us in this journey and helping us share and promote and just listening and being a part of this journey. We're excited for where it's going to go. And in this episode, I have a conversation with John Tyson. And John Tyson is a church planner, he's a pastor, he's a husband, and he's a father, and he's been an influence on me as a young church planner. And so I have been looking forward to this conversation for a while now, and it did not disappoint. Uh, We primarily talk about John's book called The Burden is Light, Liberating Your Life from the Tyranny of Performance and Success. And speaking for myself, and I think most uh, leaders can relate to this, but we can wrap our identity way too tightly around our performance and success. And so John and I have practical conversations centered around this idea of liberating, finding some freedom from the oppression that is obsession with performance and success in our lives. And so this was really impactful for me. It was really fruitful. And so I hope that you enjoy my conversation with John Tyson as much as I did. Welcome to another episode of the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. We are so excited about today's episode. We have with us John Tyson, who's going to talk to us a little bit about his newest book, The Burden is Light, and also what he's doing with his son as far as discipleship, which is Primal Path, and he'll talk to us about both things. But welcome to the podcast, John. We're so excited to have you with us. Mate, I'm really honored to be on here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, as I said, we're going to talk about your latest book, but first, tell us a little bit about your story, what led you to ministry, and where you are now. Okay. I'm originally from Australia. Uh, I've been in the US for hard to believe 21 years now. Um, I became a Christian uh, when I was 17 in a Pentecostal revival. Um, I had no interest in the things of God, though I'd um, grown up around the church. 
Uh, I, I made a conscious decision at 13 to, to have nothing to do with Christianity. And then very, very surprisingly uh, found myself on the floor shaking under the power of God in a revival. So quite a surprise. Uh, when, when that happened, I got a vision um, to become a pastor. I, I wanted to serve God with the whole of my life and felt really, really called actually to come to the United States. So I spent several years praying that God would open a door for me and uh, ended up getting a scholarship to study theology when I was 20. Met my wife there and uh, now I am where I am, which is in uh, New York City. So I've been in the city, I think uh, this is coming up on our 14th year here. So I feel in many ways, I, I identify more with New York than I do with Australia or America or anywhere else. This feels like home to me. Uh, I've been involved in church planting, planted uh, quite a few churches, helped plant churches here, and uh, about a year and a half ago launched out to do a new church called Church of the City, which is what I'm pastoring now. How was that transition as far as Australia to New York? Was it similar in the sense that we kind of think of those areas as post-Christian context or pretty different? Well, so when I first moved to the United States, I moved to a, a little town in northeast Georgia. So, oh, wow. <laughs> um, a traumatic culture shock. And I moved from, uh, it was Georgia to Texas, okay. Texas to Tampa, Tampa to Nashville, Nashville to Orlando. So uh, that was in seven years. So I spent quite a bit of time in the South, primarily around education and ministry. And that did feel like a, it felt like a different planet to me. I mean, I remember walking into Walmart and seeing a, a, a rack of Bibles and <laughs> cognitive dissonance, just I couldn't comprehend this. So in many ways, I feel a lot more comfortable in New York, which is post-Christian, but it's, it's post-Christian in a different way than Australia is. Australia, certainly when I was there, was way more apathetic about the Christian faith. In New York, I think there's a lot more hostility towards it, a lot more cynicism and condescension. So, But I, I do feel way more at home in New York than I do in the southern parts of the United States. Yeah, that is a little bit of a culture shock, I'd imagine. Um, so your latest book, The Burden is Light, Liberating Your Life from the Tyranny of Performance and Success, what prompted you, either in your own life or from the life of leaders around you, to write write that book? Well, in many ways, um, a lot of this stuff is stuff that I've personally wrestled with. You know, however, whichever personality tool you use to understand human nature, I always fall into the driven, ambitious type. And so when I came to New York, I felt like in a lot of ways I was home. This is a city filled with people desperate to make an impact, mm. desperate to be significant, uh, desperate to succeed. And I certainly had those personality traits uh, and desires inside of me. And, I, you know, God's had to do a very, very deep work of sanctification and repentance in my heart regarding a lot of it. Uh, I'm not all the way there, but I, I like to say my functional idols are broken. I've taken a hammer to them rather than um, managing them. And I, so I, I, a lot of this was stuff that was uh, wrestling and uh, seeking God through my own heart. But I also found that because... I was pastoring in a city where people had these same internal motivations that by, by breaking free from the dominant control of them, I was actually able to offer good news to similar kinds of people with similar struggles. Hmm. So in pastoring here um, these many years and preaching the good news of Jesus to people who were under the tyranny of performance and success, I found that this was surprisingly good news. The good news of Jesus was surprisingly good news, hmm. even for secular, cynical people. So a lot of this came out of my pastoring, my own personal struggles, pastoring and preaching to New Yorkers 
Oh, that's so good. Well, it's, it truly is good news. And especially when you live it yourself and it, it drives you with that sense of empathy and that sense of, of purpose to, to share with the way that the gospel has broken down those idols and, and set you free personally. I know that's, that's how my story is as well. What, what are some of the ways without giving away your whole book, what are some of the ways we become oppressed by performance and success in our life? I mean, just, you know, the, the big three comparison, competition and control, you know, uh, we have uh, only a horizontal sense of comparison rather than uh, comparing ourselves to the upward goal that God has for us. So we just fall into cycles. Uh, interestingly enough, when we talk about comparison, uh, a lot of people talk about comparing ourselves to celebrities and uber successful people. You know, I learned that's not the thing that causes damage to most people. Most people realize I'm never going to be famous. I'm never going to be like the celebrity. So comparison doesn't fall there. It falls uh, in what psychologists call the reference group, which is people who we know and think we can be like, and they're the ones that we fall into traps um, of comparing ourselves to. That's honestly why social media, it, it can be so toxic. Not because we're following celebrities and trying to be like them, but we're comparing ourselves to our former high school classmates or uh, perhaps other ministries that are like ours, and that's where we fall into this trap. And then when you fall into the trap of comparison, you feel like you have to compete. And therefore, uh, e rather than living a ministry and a life of love, everything is phrased as a competitive lens, which includes losing and overcoming and crushing and beating and all of those uh, violent terms that Americans use to describe success and competition. And then we try and control people in, instead of loving people and serving them. So those things are present in our hearts, our culture in many ways, many, many subtle, um, persuasive, invisible ways conspire against our hearts um, hmm. to make us compete with other people. Yeah. And do you, th do you find this, especially in the church culture, do you think that this has also made its way into the American church as far as promoting these things, driving these things, going after these things? Oh, oh. 100%. Um, you, you know, I mean, it, it, it's a tragedy. A.W. Artosa says this, religion has accepted the monstrous heresy that noise, size, activity, and bluster make a man dear to God. Oh. And that is that is a monstrous heresy. You know, when we talk about heresy, we normally think about theology, but this is, this is a ministry heresy that all the things we do make us dear to God. And, you know, you just, you just see that this is not the economy of heaven. Jesus' value system is just so, so different uh, than the world. So we have to continually uh, push back and resist uh, the inroads of worldly metrics into the church and uh, get our wives back on what Jesus has for us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What are some ways that you found um, are, are practical ways that you can combat against this often crushing burden when it comes to, to when we bow to performance and success? How do you combat against that? Well, I, I think a large part of it is discerning the call that God has for us. I mean, Paul said in Philippians 3 that he, you know, and he had a very, very aggressive posture towards following Jesus. You know, you look at uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, the intensity of the athletic metaphors, you know, I, I don't fight as someone beating the air and I beat my body. And so he had a very, very uh, competitive and aggressive framework, but it was all for taking hold of what God had for him. You know, so he says, I want to take hold of that for which he's taken hold of me. So it was 
a vision of the upward call, not a sideways call or a competitive call towards others. And I think we have to discern that. We have to discern who has God made us, what gifts has he sovereignly distributed in our lives, what sovereign opportunities is he opening before us, and then realizing that's what we're accountable for. We're not accountable for somebody else's call. We're not accountable for success according to American culture. We're, we're accountable to the call God has for us. So the more clarity we have on that, doing the hard work of really understanding that, who has he made me to be? Not who do I wish I was? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What ministry uh, has he put in front of me? Not one that is going to look good online. And then how do I go after that? That to me has been most the most life-giving, liberating thing, knowing who I am knowing what he has for me, and then running after that. Yeah. And they all have to do with, with identity. And for me, I, I feel like I have the spiritual memory of a goldfish. And yes. so I have to constantly remind myself of who I am in Jesus and remind myself of the implications of the gospel, that it's not just you know this moment or event of salvation, but the, the truth of the gospel has deep, deep implications of what it tells me about me, what it tells me about other people, and what it tells me about God. When when you have those moments of, of a reframed identity, how does that help lighten the burden of your leadership? Well, I, I'm just aware of who I'm serving. I mean, I, I guess I just have a different dashboard in my heart, in my mind that I pay attention to, you know, so I'm looking for, I'm looking for a sense of the father's approval. You know, I'm looking, I'm looking for deep, deep resonance uh, of love. I'm looking for, feedback from people that they feel valued and cared, cared about, not used. Um, so it's, it sort of changes the optics of what ministry is about. You know, am I cultivating love for Jesus in our people? Um, are our people seeking first the kingdom of God more in their lives? And I start paying attention to the fruit of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, rather than just external things. You know, I'm looking for that, the, the, the movements of God amongst his people. And that, that becomes the primary thing I tend to as a leader rather than, you know, purely external dynamics. Yeah, that's, that's so good. The idea of a, a different dashboard is huge. Yeah. The way you frame your leadership and, and just the, the way you live life. What are some, what are some practical ways, either rhythms or habits or spiritual disciplines that you try to live into to, to live this lighter burden life? Well, you know, one of the major ones, it may seem small, but one of the ones that I, I honestly think has, has sort of saved my soul on a practical level is is the practice of Sabbath. Hmm. You know, I, I consciously try and take a 24-hour period every week of, of, of stepping away from what I do to simply be in the presence of God. You know, I'm a big fan of Marva Dawn's framework, ceasing, resting, embracing, and feasting. I, you know, don't mock me, but every week I actually plan my Sabbath ceasing resting embracing and feasting under those four categories and I've, I've done that for many many years and we've done it as a family we've done it when our kids were little and um, it has just given me a vision of resting in the presence of god i i, I tell um people all the time that the most important thing is not whether or not you believe in the sovereignty of god it's whether or not you actually practice it and practicing the sovereignty of god one day a week I consciously just hand it all over to him has just it's been a weekly reminder and reset that it's not up to me and you know that's a small thing um, and it's certainly a growing movement but my wife would say our family has black belts in the sabbath and it's one of the things it's one of the things we've gotten right in all of our years of ministry 
Yeah, that's fantastic. I would never mock that. That's what I aspire to is yeah, this yeah. healthy rhythms of, of Sabbath and rest. And what I'm learning too is Sabbath is one of the most spiritual things that you can do because it is this proclamation that it's not all about my performance and it isn't up to me and that God is sovereign and that he is good and that I can trust in him and I can trust my team and I can trust the people that are, are in my congregation or, or however it's, it's, it's an exercise in, in trust. And so, yeah, it's, it's really unfortunate, especially in the church world that, you know, this like Sabbathing would be something to scoff at, you know? Yeah. Yes. And, and it's tearing us apart. I think, you know, when, when we just look at burnout and, and what's happening. Yeah, I had that, I, I had that, um, I don't know. It just struck me when it was very early in my leadership, maybe I was 20, you know, I'm 42 now, maybe yeah, 21 or 22. I, did, I started to realize that every conference I attended, every leadership book I read had the same talk or the same chapter by the author or the speaker. And it was this uh, ministry almost destroyed me. Hmm. And, and, uh, and so they all advocated for sustainable rhythms and practices and um, all talked about how they violated those and what it cost them. And, and I remember thinking to myself, I am the the book of Proverbs definition of a fool if every leader I respect is saying the same thing and I don't build this into my life. And so, you know, my wife and I just consciously decided in our early 20s that we were going to have daily, weekly, monthly, annual rhythms of sustainability and that we were just going to stick to them no matter what. And um, I... I you know, I've, I've been through a lot in leadership. I've had my heart broken. I've been crushed by the church. I, I've been through many, many traumatic things. But I can honestly say that, you know, I really do feel close and intimate with Jesus. My marriage is strong. Uh, I feel like I can run at the current pace I'm running at, which is, you know, a busy life with real responsibility. But I feel like I could do this for another 30 years. And it's only the grace of God hearing those warnings and heeding them early that, that has uh, enabled us to be where we are. Oh, that's so good. Thank you for sharing that, the vulnerability that comes with that, the pain that comes from that and, and um, how it's a, affecting your your longevity and your leadership. That's what we love to talk about is yeah, not just, okay, bringing someone on and talking about models and success and performance, but really who's the leader behind their church or that book and, and how do they sustain that life of yeah. not just of performing, but a love for Jesus and intimacy with Jesus. So thank you. Thanks for sharing that. I live in Colorado and I used to live in a tiny town. So Sabbath wasn't that hard, but what does Sabbath look like for you in the madness of New York city? Yeah. So I, I, I literally live in the, the middle of New York city. I, I live two blocks from times square. Oh my gosh. And no one, no one who loves New York would ever tell you to live where I live. I live in a neighborhood called hell's kitchen. And uh, it's where Walter Rushenbush wrote all of his theology of the kingdom of God, the social gospel, because it was so poor and oppressed. Now it's a gay neighborhood and it's very, very expensive to live in. So, yeah, I, I, I because of that, one of the things that's becoming increasingly important to me is uh, the, the role of getting in nature. The problem with cities is that every single thing you see is man-made. Even if you see a park, a human has made that park. And so uh, you get this very, very man-centered, false sense of scale. And because I live, you know, amidst all the skyscrapers, everything looks huge and towering and your perspective can shrink. So it's very, very important to us to get out of the city and to get into nature. 
and just to behold creation. And honestly, it was never really important to me until I lived in the city. But so for us, it's about um, eating delightful foods. It's about uh, consciously sleeping. It's about deep, deep conversations. Um, we we only try and take in redemptive media, you know, so yeah, good documentaries, life-giving stuff. And uh, so, you know, that's the sort of stuff we do. Uh, we have a, a house um, out in the Poconos, which is a, you know, I love it out there, but it's it's not the Hamptons, I'll put it like that. And uh, so, you know, we bought that, I think, seven or eight years ago with a vision of just being able to invite friends out to rest and do life out there. So, you know, being in nature, different pace of life, um, stepping into time and using it differently, just a different psychological sense about the day. And uh, we try and spend uh, real time out there in the summer. Um, One of the things we've tried to do is to build an ecosystem of thriving outside of our ministry front. So habits, places, practices, hobbies, things that we love that enable, that they just enable like buoyancy and life and joy to flow into the intensity of ministry. So we've basically got, you know, afternoon Sabbath walks through different neighborhoods. We have nature hikes that we do. We have favorite little towns in the Hudson Valley that we go to and, so we just like build a whole, we've worked very, very hard to build a, a giant web of delight around the pressures of ministry in New York City. And um, we've tried to bring our team into that, our friends into that, our church into that. And I think a lot of people um, have found that very life-giving as a part of our community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think most people hear that and they say, yes, I, I want that or something like that. That ecosystem of delight sounds amazing. Tell me how to get that. And so I would say most of us function out of a scarcity mindset. I don't have enough time for that. I, I get to the end of my week and I'm tired. And so I'm resting from work rather than working from rest. And so how do you maintain that delight, that Sabbath um, as a priority? What are some practical ways maybe from a, a scheduling standpoint or any advice on that front? Um, yeah, I mean, I would just say you can't afford not to. Mm. You know, I mean, Sabbath is coming your way sustainability is coming your way. You're either going to choose it out of longevity or you're going to burn out and it's going to be forced upon you. So you, it's, it's unavoidable. Human beings are designed to rest. And so I would just prioritize it now um, rather than waiting till you burn out or you hate your life or you want to escape your life, you know? Yeah. So I, I mean, it's, it's, you build around it. It's put the big rocks in first. It's prioritize these things and, and then begin to, yes, make this the framework with which you you design the rest of your lives and look not not legalistically every now and then something will come up where there's a season of tremendous intensity and you know but the challenge ends up being that these busy seasons don't become seasons they become our lifestyle yeah and that's when it eats us alive when we don't put those boundaries in place so yeah i mean having a time i try and practice sabbath friday night from 5 p.m till Saturday at 5 p.m. You know, I normally preach on Sunday, so I just can't um, get my mind away from the sermon on Saturday night, so I try to put those parameters in place. But just, you know, put it on the clock. Like I said, I have planning rhythms, uh, a lot of discussions with my wife. Um, you know, we have a little uh, a little joy emergency fund where if um, something comes up that we just want to spring, like let, let's just, you know, 
the kids are away. Let's just go out of town to our favorite hotel and just have a wonderful night together and go out for a great dinner. So there's, you know, all sorts of practical things, financial time, preparation, spontaneity. We try and try and build those things in. That's so good. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Um, you, you've been really intentional about other rhythms in your life. And one of the things that you've been intentional about is discipling your son. Can you tell us about yeah. um, the primal path? I know you're in the midst of, um, you're in the midst of launching that, right? Uh, pretty soon. Yeah, I, I am, yes, primalpath.co if you yeah. want to jump on the email list for when it comes out. Yeah, I, I basically um, had, I was, I was a youth pastor, as many senior pastors are, I started out in student ministry. And I, I was responsible for working uh, primarily on campus, doing outreach and discipleship. And I kept bumping into these students who were different than every other kind of student. And so I, I found out they were all Mormons. And so I was deeply intrigued with the, you know, what made a Mormon high school student different than an evangelical high school student. So I met with one of the Mormon leaders in my area, and he basically told me about um, how they do formation, my language, mm. not his. And he talked about, you know, the, the power of young men being given a covenant and a priesthood where they're prayed over and they accept spiritual responsibility. And then all high school students do a four-year, one hour before school, called seminary. One year they study the Old Testament, next year the New Testament, then Doctrine and Covenants, and then they study the Book of Mormon. Then they're sent out on a mission for two years, and then they're welcomed back into you know Mormon life, and uh, there's rites and passages that go along with all of that. And so I compared that to the typical youth group process of big, large, fun meetings, occasional retreats, and then falling off the map after college. And I thought, I have got to do something different hmm. for my son. I try to do it with students. You know, I was getting students up at 4 a.m. to pray for revival and stuff like that. But I, I said, you know, I've got almost 10 years here to work on something for my son. So I basically designed a, a five-year journey where I met with my son for about, I don't know, between half an hour and an hour every morning before school. Then one night a week we did man school. And then I did a whole series of challenges, like a, like a college degree almost in manhood. And I just built it for years. And then when he turned 13, I initiated him into it. And uh, now he's in the middle of a, a gap year. He's in India. And um, he's just come from Nepal, where I just basically try to recreate that formation process. So it's it's been so, so rich. And I just had a lot of dads say to me, what what are you doing? Like I did a camping trip once and had some men affirm my son, but it's not enough. And uh, so I so I basically took everything I learned and and turned it into a course that has fifteen modules that a dad can basically design their own pathway to take their son from adolescence into manhood. So that's what it is. I have an image of man school, and it involves a lot of red meat. So what what are some of the things you actually do in in man school it's very funny that you would mention that like uh, so it's man school was basically about skill acquisition you know men feel good about themselves when they can do things Con confidence comes from competence so a large part of it was actually depositing you know i had a list of 100 things every man should know 100 books every man should read 100 films every man should see 100 experiences every man should have all that sort of stuff and we just went about knocking that off so strangely enough one of the uh, <laughs> one of the best man school sessions was what we called band of Bro band of brothers and barbecue yes. so we developed a rating system for barbecue restaurants and my son and i 
did a tour of all the rest barbecue restaurants in New York. We'd eat, evaluate, come home, watch Band of Brothers, and then uh, talk about what we learned. So red meat's not far off it. Oh my gosh, that sounds awesome. So I think I want to be discipled through Primal Path. It's so funny. So I, I do want to say this though, you know, um, it's not based on a stereotypical vision of late modern America, disaffected manhood. It's, it's actually based on a vision to help people become like Jesus. My conviction is that Jesus is the greatest man who ever lived. Our, we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. Jesus says the student, when fully trained, will be like the master. And so the goal is actually not to just develop you know, masculine traits, but Christ-like traits. And so the goal is to, to, to help my son, you know, think, live, act, and love like Jesus Christ. So, you know, I customized it around my son who, um, as it turned out, loved meat, got a black belt in Taekwondo, and possessed many stereotypically manly traits, loved paintball, that sort of thing. But it doesn't require, like if you have a son who's more artistic or, you know, uh, is even perhaps effeminate or something like that, this, this is about getting people to be like Jesus, not just, you know, s- sitting in a hot tub, eating turkey drumsticks, you know. <laughs> yeah. 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 So how would you encourage fathers listening right now to take their next right step? Um, well, you know, I would encourage them to go to, my, go to that website and sign up. And, um, yeah. you know, I've worked very, very hard to to outline a pathway and curate resources to help it work. But I would just say to dad, look, your son is going to leave your home and he's going to look back as an adult man and he's going to evaluate you. And we want to, you know, I heard Bruce Springsteen say this, this amazing thing. It's very, very profound coming from the boss. He said, you know, when he was right before he had a strained relationship with his father, And right before he had his first child, out of nowhere, his dad drove 500 miles to have breakfast, which was beer, with him. And his father said to him, "Um, I I wasn't that good to you. You've been very good to me, but we weren't that good to you. And he realized that his dad was actually apologizing to him. And he said he had this revelation that our fathers either become ancestors or they become ghosts. They either pass on tradition in history that we reference or they haunt us with brokenness. Hmm. And he said he realized this was a request from his dad to be an ancestor in the life of his children. And I think that's the decision all fathers have. Are you going to haunt your kid with your dysfunction or are you going to be an ancestor who passes on blessing? And uh, to consciously make that choice and to do everything you can to make discipling your children your first priority. Wow. That's powerful. Bruce Springsteen said that. The boss. The boss. Springsteen on Broadway. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's super powerful. Yeah. So what we like to do in closing, because we like to pursue health and longevity, um, and, and we don't want to see leaders burn out and just become a statistic. So what, yeah. what piece of advice or maybe a paradigm shift or a practice or a tool has helped you lead for the long haul that you'd like to leave us with? Oh. I mean, can, can I put two in just very quickly? Sure, yeah. Okay, Okay. one, when I turned 40, I did an exercise, a life evaluation to try and discern what I call sovereign themes. What parts about my story are unique that are indicators to the themes that my ministry should be shaped by? Hmm. So for me, I discovered four of those things, and I realized that rather than just being accidents or incidents, they were actually the design of the ministry I was called to steward. 
So for me, those are prayer and revival coming from a charismatic tradition in, in revival, living in radical community, basically Finkenwald-esque life together Bonhoeffer living, which is where I live right now. Um, faith and work, integrating faith and work, like enabling people to find the call of God in all of life and culture. Uh, and then one-on-one discipleship. So those are the four themes of my life. Our church is in many ways really built around those themes. Hmm. So what are your sovereign themes? Lead out of them. That's a way to find your upward call. The other thing I would say is uh, just the importance, I know it sounds crazy, of the importance of prayer. You know, I mean, I, I am just often staggered at the prayerlessness that... Um, pastors live with and leaders live with and then the guilt they feel associated with it and um, i just would encourage people just to whatever your history with prayer is get rid of any guilt and just lean back into abiding in jesus love just spending Mm. time in the father's heart you know that to me has has kept me sane that has just been a place of rest so you know getting back to abiding prayer time with the father connecting to the vine super important i do it early in the morning and i do it late at night so in the morning it's primarily personal and at night it's primarily intercession Hmm. i'd urge people to that yeah that's great well john we really appreciate you coming on and we think that you have a lot to say to our listeners um deep things about our health and our souls and, and what it means to be leaders so how can our listeners track along with what you're doing um, if you know if they want to listen to our podcast, um, our URL is just uh, church.nyc, so they could jump on there and uh, follow along. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at John Tyson, J O N T Y S O N. Great. We'll put those in the show notes. And um, thank you so much. I think I speak for all of our listeners to um, say thank you for just the wisdom that you imparted today and um, just the the practical steps that you've given us to to not be bound by the tyranny of performance and success and to make um, practical changes in how to rest well and live well and live the life that that really God has called us to. So thank you so much for coming on our podcast. And uh, listeners, we'll see you in the next episode of the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. I'm so thankful for John and the time that he spent with us and just his wisdom um, from ministry, from life, from the pain, um, from things that he's learned along the way, whether that's kind of the hard way, just like most of us in leadership. And so if I had to guess, because many of you are in leadership and you are most likely a human being, leadership can be incredibly um, heavy. It can be a burden. And whether it's ministry or business or parenting, you have real responsibilities that that have a weight to them. There's no doubt about that. But John's message of hope is that the burden doesn't need to be crippling, that that weight doesn't need to be paralyzing for us. And a lot of our burden is driven by um, our personalities of success and performance and wanting to always um, move towards the top. And if we're oriented that way as leaders, a lot of this burden that's crippling is self-imposed. And so that's, that's in a lot of ways the good news, is that there are ways in which we can 
begin to heave this burden off of ourselves by rooting our identity in the appropriate places, not rooting our our identity in our performance and our success and the ways that other people view us or how we view ourselves in compared to other people. And so there's just so much there and and really kind of his key point when he talked about um, how we begin to lighten that burden in our own lives in a practical way was something that we talk about all the time at Stay Forth, which was Sabbath. And Sabbath is that moment in which you are proclaiming to yourself, proclaiming to others, your team, and proclaiming to God that you truly do trust in the sovereignty and providence and goodness of God in that moment. And I need that reminder all the time because really it's this lived theology that if we have a theology of, of God's sovereignty and his providence and his grace and his goodness, then, then Sabbath is going to be something that we, we enter into with delight because our Father, our Heavenly Father, is, is good and he is worth trusting and therefore we can take a rest. We can um, take a break from trying to perform even if it's just one day a week, is to protect that time. And so John had so much gold um, in practical ways of how he does that individually and as a family, creating those webs of, of delight that he talks about, whether it's a, a place outside of the place that you live and work or lead, or you can do that within, um, finding those spaces and those activities and those good food and good relationships and good conversations and good spaces to just develop that, that web of delight that you can rest and enjoy and be refilled and recharged and restored in those moments. And so we like to ask questions to end um, our podcast so that Yeah, you don't just consume content, but you have something tangible that you can take away and begin to wrestle with and apply back to your life and your leadership. So here are three questions to to end the show with. First, where in your life is the burden too heavy? And for some of you, you know exactly where that is. It's just maybe crippling. It's painful. uh, It seems unbearable. And for some of you, you, you may need to process that for a little bit. But where in your life, what area of your life is the burden just too heavy for leadership? Second, why? Why is that? Can you identify the root of that symptom? You know, is it performance? Is it a sense of achievement and success? Is it your identity to wrapped around a certain area of your life or part of your leadership or job or role? Is it a lack of rest that's just wearing you down and it's a beat down? And then the third thing is how will you practically address that area in your life to lighten the burden, to lighten the burden of leadership and life in general? And it can be really practical. It could be protecting that time of Sabbath. It could be removing or limiting certain things in your life that are contributing to comparison, um, social media. Or it could be simply reminding yourself of who you are in Christ on a daily basis so that you don't forget your true identity, who you are, that it's not about your performance, but it's about your position as a child of God. And I need to do that daily because I forget. And so wrestle with those questions, process those questions either by yourself or with someone else. And um, yeah, we're just so thankful that you guys are following along with these conversations. And so as always, if you found these conversations to be valuable to you, please consider subscribing. What that does is that you will never miss a new release of an episode. You'll get notified each time we drop a new episode. And also give us a rating and a review on iTunes or whatever platform that you're listening on that helps us get found by more and more leaders 
and get this message of hope out to as many people as possible. And also just share with family and friends if you think that this would be valuable for them. So thanks again for listening and we'll see you in the next episode of the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. So long.